evidence and answers. One of the most compelling arguments for the existence of God is the design argument. The design argument states that where you see complexity and design, it points to its designer. And throughout the universe, from the telescope to the microscope, you see design. As science continues to advance, the new discoveries continue to point to intelligent design. You're tuned to Evidence and Answers radio broadcast with your host, Pat Zucaran. Pat is an author, teacher, and international speaker in the area of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. Today on our show, Pat and astrophysicist Dr. Hugh Ross discuss the new scientific discoveries that build the case for an intelligent designer. Now, here's Pat with part one. You're listening to Evidence and Answers, where we provide compelling evidence for faith and hope in Christ and biblical answers for the issues of today. Well, one of the most compelling arguments for the existence of God is the design argument. And the design argument states where you see complexity and design, it points to a designer. And throughout the universe, from the telescope to the microscope, you see evidence of intelligent design. And as science continues to advance, the new discoveries continue to point to intelligent design, which is what you would expect. If this is God's world, you would expect to see God's hand throughout His creation. And today we have with us Dr. Hugh Ross. Dr. Ross is senior scholar, founder, and former president of Reasons to Believe, a fantastic ministry that helps Christians put faith and science together. He holds degrees in physics from the University of British Columbia and a PhD in astronomy from the University of Toronto. And he's an author of numerous books on Christianity and science. His books include Why the Universe is the Way it Is, The Improbable Planet, and Design to the Core, a new book that has come out, and that's what we're going to be talking about today. And Dr. Ross has spoken on hundreds of university campuses as well as conferences and churches around the world. He's a regular on our show. His whole team is a regular on our show, and he'll be speaking at a conference coming here in Hawaii. So you want to go on our website and find out more information about that. But Dr. Ross, welcome back to Evidence and Answers. Oh, thank you for inviting me. Yes, well, Hugh, we're talking about your new book out here, Designed to the Core. And before we get to that, let's first, you know, some people may want to know, how did you, as a scientist, come to believe in the God, specifically the God of the Bible? Well, I was not raised in a Christian home. I was born and raised and educated in Canada, but got fascinated by astronomy when I was seven years of age. actually knew from the age of eight onward that astrophysics would be my future career. And it was my ongoing studies of astronomy and physics that persuaded me the universe must have a beginning. That happened when I was 16. At age 17, I said, I want to find the cosmic beginner. So I looked for them, the writings of the great philosophers, was disappointed. I went through the world's holy books. Finally, I picked up a Bible and spent two years going through it and realized this Bible is not only historically and scientifically accurate in everything it says, it actually predicts future scientific discoveries. So I wound up uh, giving my life to Jesus Christ by signing my name on the back of a Gideon Bible uh, when I was a sophomore in physics at the University of British Columbia. And many years later, I finally met Christians. And it was coming to Caltech where I actually got to know a serious Christian. He showed me how to get, find a Bible-believing church. 
and that church put me on their pastoral staff, and it was that church that helped me found uh, Reasons to Believe 37 years ago. So you, as a scientist, take the Genesis account of creation uh, literally. It's not an allegory or folklore. You take it as a literal account. I do take it literally, consistently, chronologically. I mean, I came to the Bible being thoroughly saturated in the scientific method. And so I recognized right away that the point of view for the six days of creation is the observer on the surface of the earth, the Spirit of God that's hovering over the surface of the waters. Now, I run into scientists today who think Genesis teaches scientific nonsense. I say, well, from what point of view are you interpreting the text? They say, well, it's God above the earth. They says, that's not what Genesis 1-2 says. The Spirit of God is hovering in the surface of the waters. And from that frame of reference, everything Genesis 1 states is correctly described and the correct chronological order. And that was a big factor in my coming to the conclusion that the Bible must be the inspired, inerrant Word of God. Now, how did you see the difference between the Bible and other books when it comes to, you know, the creation and order in the universe? Well, I looked first at the Hindu Vedas, and they describe the universe as being a reincarnating system, where it has a beginning, uh, it grows, it dies, has another beginning, and it actually gave a number on the cyclical uh, period. said it was 4.32 billion years between one beginning and the next beginning. And I knew from my astronomy that that number was incorrect, I also knew from my astronomy that the universe has an entropy measure 100 million times too high to permit a rebound mechanism for the universe. So that's why I put Hinduism aside. That's why I put Buddhism aside, because the Buddhist cosmology is the same as Hindu cosmology. And that's why I was attracted to the Bible, because it says the universe has a single beginning, a single beginning that even includes the beginning of space and time itself, which was something that's consistent with the space-time theorems. Now, the dominant notion today in the culture is that science and Christianity are really at war and that, you know, one cannot take the Bible's teaching seriously and be serious about science. And how did this come about? Well, I think it came about, number one, people put the wrong point of view on Genesis 1. And I would agree. I mean, if you have God above the Earth's atmosphere rather than below the atmosphere, Genesis 1 is teaching scientific nonsense. So that's a big problem. It was Galileo who said, the biggest mistake you can make in Bible interpretation is to get the wrong point of view. Mm-hmm. So that's a big factor. Another big factor is a number of uh, secular scientists believe that the creation days in Genesis 1 are six consecutive 24-hour periods. They say, if that's what the Bible teaches then clearly the Bible's got it all wrong. But when I came to the Bible, it was obvious to me, even in the first reading of the Bible, that these creation days must be six consecutive long periods of time. Therefore, there's no contradiction between the time scale that the Bible teaches and the time scale we see in astronomy, physics, and geology. Yeah, now we're going to talk more about that. Now, in your new book here, Design to the Core, it's detailing facets of the universe that support the design argument here. And what made you decide to dig deeper into the fine-tuning argument? Well, you mentioned it in your introduction, how the fine-tuning argument has been the go-to argument, at least scientifically, to prove that God exists to skeptics. 
It's been that way for 2,000 years. This book is actually my fifth book I've written on fine-tuning, but my motivation for writing it is so many books on cosmic fine-tuning look at it in the context of the universe as a whole. And when you do that, you can kind of keep God at an arm's length because the universe is so big. But what I've done in design at the core is to say the fine-tuning argument for God applies at every single cosmic size scale, from the universe as a whole to the cosmic web to the super galaxy cluster in which we live, the galaxy cluster, the local group of galaxies in which we inhabit our galaxy, uh, the local arm in our galaxy, the local bubble along that arm, the local fluff within that bubble, all the way down to our planetary system, the interiors of the eight planets, the exteriors of those eight planets, uh, the moon, the sun, the earth, no matter what cosmic size scale you look at, you see overwhelming evidence that has been highly fine-tuned to make possible the existence of God and how each of these cosmic features, we live in a unique bubble of the cosmic web. We live in a super galaxy cluster that's unlike any other in the entire universe. We live in a unique galaxy cluster. Our local group is unlike any other grouping of galaxies in the universe, and it goes all the way down. Uh, for example, our star of the sun, it's five times more stable in its luminosity than the star that we have found that places second. So each of these items is unique. And you know, even the atheist astronomer Neil deGrasse Tyson made the comment, says, the universe is out to kill us. Everywhere we go in the universe beyond planet Earth, we see conditions that are very hostile for advanced life. Our super galaxy cluster, our galaxy cluster, our local group, uh, our galaxy, our spiral arm, our local bubble, our local fluff, our planetary system, our star, our moon, our planet, each one proves to be unique in the universe and its capacity to make possible advanced life here on planet Earth. Now, you talk about 11 different areas of fine-tuning. Which of the 11 different areas of fine-tuning did you find the most compelling and difficult to refute? Probably the one we know the most about, and that's kind of a biblical principle. The more we learn about creation, the more we learn about nature, the more evidence we uncover for the supernatural handiwork of God. And where astronomers have the most detailed data uh, would be planetary systems. And so I wrote two whole chapters on uh, the planetary systems because we've now found several thousand of them outside of our solar system. But what we noticed, probably the thing that struck me most spectacularly, is that we're no longer dealing with a single planetary habitable zone. If you go to the NASA website, they make the claim that there may be billions of habitable planets in our Milky Way galaxy alone. But the only habitability requirement they're looking at is how far do you need to be from your host star to have the possibility of liquid water existing on the planet's surface. Well, that's only one of the known planetary habitable zones. Today we know of 14, and it's like every year we discover a new one. And for a planet to be truly habitable, it must simultaneously reside in all 14 known planetary habitable zones. And we've yet to find a planet beyond planet Earth that resides in even three of those 14. And, of course, we live in the one that resides in all 14 uh, simultaneously. 
So a lot of what I write in the book is about those newly discovered planetary habitable zones that basically rule out any naturalistic possibility for there being even one other body in the entire universe that has the conditions that would make advanced life possible. Yeah, those are some fascinating chapters. I got to read over some of those briefly. Now, Hugh, how do you respond to the atheists who try to refute the design argument, saying things happen to fall in place naturally with the appearance of design? You know, one example often quoted we hear is fairy circles. You know, mushroom spores uh, proceed from the mushroom, and when you get up the next morning, there's a circle of mushrooms there. And it looks like design, but it's not. We can explain it through natural causes. Right. Well, I've been speaking on the fine-tuning argument for God since the 1970s. In the 1980s, I told university audiences, a time will come when the evidence for fine-tuned designs will be so overwhelming and so pervasive that atheists will have nowhere else to go but to speculate that there's an infinite number of universes where they're all different from one another. And we happen by pure chance to live in the one lucky universe where everything is just right to make our existence possible. And it wasn't until the year 2000 that atheists actually went there. And it's called the multiverse. Mm -hmm. A lot of people have heard of it. But it was Leonard Susskind, who is an agnostic astrophysicist, who said, We atheists and agnostics have got to stop using the multiverse. It's a bad argument. It explains everything, and an argument that explains everything explains nothing. And what I've done is to provide an analogy, because infinity plus infinity equals infinity. Infinity times infinity equals infinity. Infinity to the infinity power equals infinity. So when you appeal to infinity, there's infinities everywhere. And an infinite number of universes, where they're all different from one another, you'll have an infinite number of planets identical to planet Earth. And on those infinite number of planet Earths, you're going to have an infinite variety of birch trees. And birch trees peel white pieces of bark. If you've got an infinite variety of birch tree species, one will peel thin white pieces of bark that are perfectly rectangular and measure 8.5 by 11 inches. And these pieces of white bark will fall on soils with random chemicals in them that will wind up imprinting on those white pieces of bark every photograph, every diagram, uh, every equation, every paragraph, and every scientific paper that's been written since the beginning of human beings. Which means that we'd be concluding those millions of scientific research papers in the literature, they didn't come from the minds of scientists. The multiverse did it. And so what I'm saying is, if you're going to appeal uh, to all these infinities to explain away God's design, it explains away all designs, including our human designs. So you're basically pointing out that the argument is self-refuting. Wow, that's great. You know, that's a good response there. You know, here's one that I hear often that's similar to that one. And that is, you know, we look at things and we impose design on structures that we see. You know, for example, if you have alphabet cereal floating in milk there and you got a bunch of letters floating in the milk, you automatically start trying to put them in words together. But there's no order or design. They just kind of fell in there randomly. We impose our design on what we see in nature. How do you answer that one? Well, 
is a, a valid point, and I think it works if you've got a simple purpose behind the design. But what's interesting about the Christian design argument is that God has multiple reasons for designing the universe and all of its subcomponents the way he does. In my book, Why the Universe is the Way It Is, I said, here are 12 purposes that we know of for sure. God may have others. And so what I did in Design to the Core is say, this design is not only for the purpose of making bacteria possible. If you don't have bacteria, there's no possibility of chemically transforming a planet for advanced life. But it's simultaneously designed to make possible plants and animals. And it's also simultaneously designed to make possible human beings. But here's what you notice. The design you need for plants and animals is exponentially greater than the design you need for bacteria. And the design you need for human beings is exponentially greater than the design you need for plants and animals. And if you want billions of humans living on a planet at a single time, that requires exponentially greater design than having a few beings living for a short period on a particular uh, planet. But where you see the greatest exponentiation is the design of the universe and all of its subcomponents to make possible the redemption of billions of human beings from their sin and evil. And what I've done at the close of the book is basically challenge scientists who are reading the book who are not yet followers of Jesus Christ. Look, I know you're not a believer, but if you will do your scientific research from a biblical, redemptive perspective, it'll make you more successful at making scientific discoveries. Put my book to the test and see if it doesn't make you a better scientist. But my real goal is that in becoming a more successful scientist, they'll recognize there's truth to the message that we see in the Bible. Yeah, so what you're saying, if I could put it uh, simply, is not we come to uh, alphabet cereal and we see floating in there D-A-D, dad. But if we came to it and we saw letters, a whole bunch of letters in there saying a specific message, Johnny, take out the trash today, then we'd start thinking, wait a minute, this somehow, because there's so much complexity, so much design, so much order, there's a pattern here. We would look at that and say, hey, wait a minute, somebody put all those letters in order here. And that's what you're saying we, as we study the universe. It's not so simple as just saying the three letters came together. I mean, it's really complex in how it all came together. Isn't that what you're saying? Yeah, a good analogy would be you've got a bowl of alphabet soup, and it doesn't just put together a single word. It puts together the entirety in perfect order from one of Shakespeare's plays. Yeah. Now you realize a level of complexity and purpose and design that really can't be attributed to pure chance. Yes. Now, so your book, you go from the universe and you gradually come down to our solar system and planet Earth. So let's just take a few examples from your book here. Let's start with the anthropic principle. We hear a lot about that. What is the anthropic principle and how does that build a compelling case for intelligent design? Well, in my office here, I've got 50 books on the anthropic principle, and that principle basically states that when we look at the universe, we see that it has dozens and actually hundreds of design features that makes possible the existence of humans or the equivalent of humans in the universe. So anthropic principle means it's been designed for humans. 
Yeah, and we're learning that it doesn't just take this planet to make life possible. I mean, we need a sun, we need a moon, the gravitational force of the universe, and, and a whole lot of things in the universe have to be just right to make life possible here on this Earth. Well, for example, uh, back in 1995, when astronomers began to discover planets outside of our solar system, they were predicting we're going to find hundreds that are just like the planets in our solar system. Well, here we are today, and over 5,000 of these planets have been discovered, and not a single one is like any of the eight planets in our solar system. But it led to a discovery that each of the eight planets in our solar system must be exquisitely fine-tuned to make possible advanced life here on planet Earth. So Mars is not an accident. Neither is Neptune an accident. They've been perfectly designed to make possible advanced life here on planet Earth. Then we went on to discover how amazingly designed our sun is to make advanced life possible on Earth. So that's kind of what I try to do in design to the core, is say no matter what size scale you look at, you're going to find a case of the anthropic principle, not just on the level of the universe, but on every single size scale you choose to look at. The design argument is pervasive throughout the entire universe. I mean, for example, there are tens of thousands of super galaxy clusters in the universe, but the one we live in sticks out like a sore thumb. It's the only one where the galaxy clusters aren't jammed tightly together. They're spread out along these long, thin uh, filaments and subfilaments, which is exactly what's needed to make advanced life possible. But we live in the only one that has those features. And you can make that argument all the way down the line. We live on the only galaxy where it's possible. What I do in the book is I show you the 18 spiral galaxies that come the closest to matching our Milky Way galaxy. But what you discover is none of them come even close to having the features that would make possible advanced life within that galaxy. Contrary to what you see in Star Wars, there is no galaxy far, far away. Yeah, and I think the more and more we understand what it takes to have life on a planet, the odds continue to increase, doesn't it, that perhaps we might be the unique planet here. I mean, the probability of life on a other planet continues to shrink as more and more we discover just what it takes to make life possible. Isn't that right? That's correct. And moreover, there are papers that have been published saying it takes a minimum time, given the laws of physics, to bring advanced life upon the cosmic scene. And we humans are here at that minimum time. So some of my colleagues are speculating maybe there's other places in the universe where there could be advanced life, but only in the future. It can't be in the past or the present. We are the first. And the other thing we discover about this fine-tuning is that it's been wonderfully fine-tuned to make it possible for we humans to observe the universe and observe the entirety of cosmic history. So if our creator put us here any earlier in the universe, we'd only be seeing part of the past history of the universe. If he put us here any later, Likewise, we'd only be seeing part of the past history of the universe. We're here at the optimal time when we can look back and see the entire history of the universe and directly witness the cosmic creation event. And it's our ability to directly observe the cosmic creation event where we get the most compelling and rigorous scientific evidence that a God beyond space and time must exist. 
And we not only exist at the ideal time, the only time, we are living in the only location within the universe where advanced life could exist, where the advanced uh, species could actually observe the entire history of the universe. Somebody wanted us to be able to read the whole book of nature. Once again, our time has come to a close. Thank you for joining us here on Evidence and Answers Radio Broadcast. We hope you enjoyed this exciting show. If you would like Pat to speak at your church, Bible study, or even hold an apologetics conference at your church or location, give him a call in Hawaii. That number is 483-0586. Or you may contact him through the Evidence and Answers website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. You'll find we have a wide variety of different topics that will make for an incredible series. Use our search engine for available resources. We have everything from atheism to Zen Buddhism, including articles and additional audio for you to listen to or download. So be sure to share our website with those around you. To keep quality broadcasts like Pat's on the air, we rely on generous financial support from you, our listeners. For the opportunity to partner with us, head on over to our website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. And you may do so right there online. Evidence and Answers would like to thank one of our sponsors, the Honolulu Christian Church. If you don't have a home church and are looking for a great place to connect and grow in Christ, check out the Honolulu Christian Church. For service times, log on at honoluluchristian.org. Join us again next time on the air or online as we provide compelling reasons for faith in Christ. That's Evidence and Answers with Pat Zucaran. Oh, 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 oh,